So I like these, those old hymns. How about you? Yeah, we have to do those more often, I think. Those are good. I see myself standing by my mother as she felt she would belt out those hymns. Um, of course, you know, when you're a little kid, you always think your mom is the best. She's always the prettiest woman in the church, and she always sings better than everybody else. Of course, as I got older, I realized she didn't quite sing as good as everybody else. But uh, what a privilege, right, to stand by your parents as a young person and praise the Lord. So tonight in our study of the attributes of God, which a lot of you guys are attending, some of you are not attending, uh, we'll be looking at God's holiness and His power. So that's going to be the focus of the message this morning, God's holiness and His power. And you heard Joe read the text from Isaiah 40, 25. God puts the question to us, To whom then will you liken me that I should be His equal, says the Holy One. Now, I wasn't really trying very hard, and I found seven other times where God asks this question or something similar to it in the Scripture. I think we're supposed to be thinking about this. So I'll just stop and ask, are you thinking about this question that God has put to us? To whom will you liken me? I think we're supposed to be thinking about this every day when we roll out of bed. It appears that he's quite serious. Again, I found it seven other times. I'm going to share those texts with you. Uh, Exodus 15, 11, Moses says, Who is like you among the gods? O Lord, Psalm 89, 8. The psalmist asks, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? Psalm 113, 5. Again, the psalmist writes, who is like the Lord our God? Psalm 40, verse 18. Isaiah asks, to whom then will you liken God? Again, Isaiah 44, 8. God says, is there any God beside me? I love it there in Isaiah 44, 48, because he says, is there any God besides me? Then he says, I don't know of any. I love that. I love the, the humor there. Isaiah 46, 5, God asks, To whom would you liken me? Micah 7, 18, Micah writes, Who is a God like you? And then, of course, there's this important and essential question that follows. It's the question John asks in Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. God asks us repeatedly, who is like me? And of course, John, again, I think the essential follow-up question, who will not fear a God like Yahweh? King David and the Apostle Paul both identified mankind's ultimate stupidity, right? If I gave you a minute, you'd be able to tell me exactly what that was. From Psalm 36, 1 and from Romans 3, 8, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The ultimate stupidity of mankind. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But God will remedy that, right? God will remedy that. Now, He's remedied that in the hearts and minds of His people, but He will soon remedy that. Every knee will bow, even the damned. God is going to remedy that. 
problem. Over the last few weeks, we've contemplated the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. I know you're tired of hearing me say that, but I don't want you to ever forget that question or that proposition. You must reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Because if you don't, you'll have no higher priority than yourself. Unless you're genuinely looking at Yahweh. I mean, aggressively, proactively looking at Yahweh every day in His Word. Now you think, well, Jim, I've been a Christian a long time. I really don't need to be in the Bible every day. Wrong. You do need to be in the Bible every day. You need to look at Yahweh every day. And you need to be reminded that there's no God like Him. He's God. You're not we ask the question, why anything, why everything? I, I think you could answer that already. I've covered it many times. For the glory of God and joy, the joy of the elect, we, we ask, is he worthy? God says he's worthy. He says, I'm God, there's no one like me, Isaiah 46, 9. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? No. We put our hands over our mouths. We were Zooming with the, our friends in Europe. Yesterday, we were talking about these deep and weighty things of God. And, and uh, one young woman from Greece, she said, she said, you know, we were talking about the potter and the clay thing. And she says, you know, we just have to keep uh, shutting up more and more. The, the deeper we go, the more we need to put our hands on our mouths. Because, you know, the deeper you go, many times people want to question and critique God. Because they don't quite understand. Their finite mind can't grasp all that he's communicating. And I love what Elaine said. She said, we just need to shut up more. I thought that was, was perfect. Do you think lightly of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Yes, we do, unless we are astonished every day calamity doesn't come for us. We asked who has known the mind of the Lord. No one, his judgments are unsearchable. They are unfathomable. He is the inscrutable God. We ask, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? No, he's immutably sovereign. We talked about this last week. He does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases. Don't you love that about him? <laughs> That's your father, right? That's your father. Your father has limitless power and authority. C.S. Lewis and John Piper have reminded us through this series that God is, and we, again, Elaine brought this up yesterday, the strangeness of God. She said, I've never really thought much about this. I think it's good for us to think about it. He is other. He's other. He's supernatural, right? Again, Lewis and Piper reminded us that God is vastly greater, more glorious, more strange, more dreadful, and more terrifying than we could ever imagine. And his absolute freedom, rights, and power as creator sometimes stun us. This is not a democracy. Okay? It's what a, a lot of Americans have problems with, with a sovereign. He has absolute power. He's not polling you. He doesn't need your permission. He's not trying to lobby you. He's God. He's God. It's something that, it's been my experience, and I've been doing this. You know, as soon as I was converted, uh, I began doing ministry. I started teaching, you know, punks like Vaden, high school kids. And uh, so I've been, I've been doing this a long time, and I've been, watching, I've been watching this for a long time in the church, right? And uh, 
your average church member has never really reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. Not really. Not in such a way that it affects the way they think and how they surf the internet and how they treat their spouse and how they raise their kids. You know, you know I, one thing I was trying to instill in some of those young men over there, you know, before you go to that website, why don't you think about the, you know, or reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God? Why don't you reckon with that? I don't think you're going to go to the porn site after you, after you start thinking deeply about Yahweh. I don't think you're going to go there. I just don't think you are. I just don't think you will. Many church members have these nominal, superficial um, thoughts of God, these, these shallow notions, these false notions. That's one thing we seek to rectify here at, at Grace. We just want to always be moving forward, right? Always moving up, always moving forward, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. All of His fullness. We can't get to all of His fullness, but we're going to keep reaching for all of His fullness, right? That's what I hope we're doing, at least in part in this series. I, I still remember as a young Christian reading, reading through the Bible for the first time, and bam, I ran into to Malachi. You know the, the great, the great uh, text there in the, the last book of the Old Testament. God is indicting Israel. And as far as I can tell, God really seems to hate this as much as anything. Feigned worship. It seems like this is the thing God really hates. People to pretend that they worship Him when there's no actual worship going on in the heart. As far as I can tell, God hates this as much as anything else. You know how God indicts the Old Testament Jews here about bringing leftover sacrifices to him. You know, the, bl uh, the blind, the lame, and the sick. And he says, where's my honor? You would never do this to an earthly king. He says, where's my honor? Where's my respect? You would never act like this before an earthly sovereign. And he goes on to indict them. He says, I just wish one of you would shut the gates that, that you would stop uselessly kindling fire on my altar. I do not receive what you're doing. You, know, you can go over to that great text over in Amos. I will not delight in your, your festivals. I, I do not receive your sacrifices. God says, I'm a great king. Capital, you know, capital K, king. I'm God's basically what he's saying. I'm a great king. How dare you come before me in some shallow, superficial, trivial way? You remember what the Lord said to the merely religious in Jeremiah's day. This is astonishing. Jeremiah 6.10, Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. Now, most of you probably haven't used the word reproach this week, or maybe last week or the week before. It's not a word that we use very often, so I looked it up. What does it mean that the word had become a reproach to them? It had become, that it, what it means is that, that, that they, there was a, a level of disappointment in the word, which is stunning and astonishing, and they disapproved of it. They disapproved of the word of God. Well, you guys know all about that. There are some who just simply disapprove of God's word. They will not hear God's word. It's stunning. 
God goes on to say there in Jeremiah 5, 6, God calls this kind of this kind of attitude against him and his word apostasy. He's very plain. It's just apostasy. And then the Lord asks in Jeremiah 5, Shall I not punish these people? These people who pretend? Shall I not, shall I not punish them? He says, Shall I not avenge them? Shall I not avenge my kingship? He goes on. He asks him, he says, do you not fear me? Do you not tremble in my presence? You know, one thing we're trying to garner in this series and in our study is that we would. We would be happy to immerse ourselves in Isaiah 66 too. And again, if you don't know Isaiah 66 too, I just encourage you to, to at least commit to, to, to memory to, to some degree, maybe not verbatim, that we would be humble, that we would be contrite. And what's the last one? Who knows? We would tremble at his word. You know, th th these are the people who've actually caught a glimpse of Yahweh, right? People who come to him with contrition and humility Oh, you're God? I'll hear whatever you have to say. And I won't throw a tantrum about it. I won't get mad about it. I won't split the church over it. I'll receive it. And I'll ultimately, I know I'll love it. Even if I'm upset today, even if I don't get it today, I know I'm going to love it. At some point, I'm going to love it because you said it and you did it. That's all that matters, right? <laughs> it's all that matters. He's God. Yeah, we talked about it yesterday, and you've heard me say it before. Hey, when you get your own universe, you do it the way you want. You do it the way you want. Isaiah 66, 2. You have to love it. You have to love it. So what's the go-to text? If we're going to consider God's holiness, we all know what the go-to text is, right? Uh, there are several, obviously. There, I think God's holiness is mentioned 250 plus times in the scriptures, but there's a go-to text. I think Brad actually hit it in the last series he, he uh, preached, Isaiah 6. Let's just go there real quick. Isaiah 6, verse 1. Isaiah 6, verse 1. You guys know this famous text. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah was a prophet's prophet. Obviously he knew that God was holy, but he had never seen it until now. You know, we have these abstract notions, don't we? <laughs> We're all guilty of this. We have these abstract notions. It's not abstract for Isaiah anymore. 
Now he sees perfect holiness juxtaposed to his sin. Even as a prophet, his gross sin before ultimate and perfect, uh, perfect holiness. That juxtaposition. You know? He says, woe is me. And you look at some other translations and other translations put uh, these words in Isaiah's mouth. I am undone. I am lost. I am doomed. I am destroyed. You know, the word woe actually means condemnation. He, he says, woe is it's self-condemnation. He's seen holiness. He knows who he is. It's self-condemnation. Woe is me. <laughs> you know, one thing I want you to realize when you look at lofty theology, where does it drive us as a New Testament church? When you look at God in all of his fullness, where does it drive you? Where does it drive you? You gotta, you gotta run to the cross, right? You gotta have Jesus. You have to run to the cross. You have no hope as a church member. You have no hope. God doesn't care what church you belong to. He's not interested in that you're a Baptist or, or whatever. That doesn't matter. What matters is, have you run to the cross and have you received Christ? And do you love Him? And do you adore Him? And do you walk with Him? You know, do you, do you commune with Him in prayer? Do you love His Word? It's all about that real relationship. So no more pleasant fiction for Isaiah. No more religious delusions. He knows he's in big trouble. Self-condemnation. Woe is me. So God is holy. We're not. And you must deal with the magnitude of this. You say, well, Jim... You keep saying this to us over and over and over again. And I'm going to tell you again why. Because I've been doing this for a really, really long time. Forty years almost. As far as lay and vocational ministry. And I know the statistics. And I know what it's like to pastor a church. And I know, I'm going to say lovingly, I know that some of you here have never really reckoned with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. And I'll confess, I know I haven't fully done it either. It's work. You want to you wanna know Yahweh? It's work. <laughs> you got to get in the Word. You got to get on your face. You know, you got to put down your sin. It's work. Brother, play a video game, right? Brother, watch some TV. Nothing wrong with those inherently. But don't tell me you don't have time to, to, to do the work, to look at Yahweh and be in awe. Some of you might say, well, Jim, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've not been granted a physical vision of God like Isaiah. I wasn't given what Isaiah was given. You're right. But you probably have something far greater than Isaiah had. You have a completed scripture. You have the full revelation. You don't have a physical revelation, but you have the full revelation of God. Isaiah didn't have this. You have something he never got. Arguably, God has granted you a greater vision of himself. Arguably. Through the scriptures. If we're seriously reflecting on Isaiah's account... Here we are compelled, again, we are compelled 
to understand that we must come to God in contrition and humility and trembling. Reproach. I was stunned. I, I, when, I, when I looked up the word, I was stunned that the word had become a reproach. Okay, 40 years. I've been doing this 40 years. And there's this, there seems like there is this disapproval often of what God actually says in his Bible. It's, it, it really is. It's breathtaking. It's stunning. Let me ask you, what does your life say about how you view God's word? What does your life say? What does your spouse say? What do your kids say? What do your coworkers say? What do your neighbors say? When they just look at you, what, what do they think about God's word? Are you incarnating it? It's a good question for us. It's something for us to consider. I want to say to you, through Scripture, in our mind's eye, we not only get to conceptually see what uh, Isaiah saw, we can, we can in some measure grasp it because God shows us over and over and over again what it will be like when you stand before Him apart from Jesus Christ. Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Joshua fell on his face, put his face to the earth. Ezekiel fell on his face. Daniel's color turned a deathly pallor, and he, re he retained no strength with his, with his face to the ground. Peter, James, and John fell on their faces and were much afraid. Paul fell to the ground, and John again in the Revelation, he fell as a dead man. You're supposed to connect the dots here. This is what it's like for a, a human being to glimpse Yahweh in his unveiled glory. This was what it would be like. Can you connect the dots? I didn't get a physical vision. You don't have to get a physical vision. You've got the Word of God. God is telling you nine guys that saw him, and this is how every one of them reacted. Just connect the dots. Don't Say, I didn't get what Isaiah got. I'm going to contend again that you have gotten more than what Isaiah got. You and I have no excuse. We have no excuse. When it comes to thinking worthy thoughts of God. I couldn't help but think of Rahab here. I was thinking of, uh, you guys know the, 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 the account when, over in Joshua, when the spies come to her. You know, she never saw, she didn't see God destroy Egypt. She didn't see God split the Red Sea. She didn't see God destroy the kingdoms uh, before they got to Jericho. She didn't see any of this. But what does she say? This is, this is interesting. Well, when I heard these things, I, my heart melted, for indeed the Lord your God, He is God in heaven and earth, right? She just heard it, and she believed it. You know, they'll say, well, I didn't see what Isaiah saw. Yes, you did. It's in the text. You saw it through nine guys. Nine guys have reported to you what it's like for a human being to stand before Yahweh and His perfect holiness. 
This is pretty important, beloved. God expects you and I to simply believe what He has revealed to us. Consequently, we will. We will reckon with the magnitude of what it means for Yahweh to be Yahweh. God is holy and we're not. This is God's point. You need a Savior, right? <laughs> all nine times. All nine times. You need a Savior. This is, the, this is the undercurrent. You need a Savior. This is the unspoken thing. You need a Savior. You need a great Savior. Oh, here's my son. And I, I, I'm, I'm nauseated at how superficial this is in most places. Right? We think we got, we got a get out of hell card stuck in our back, in our billfold, and we can just pull it out anytime we want because, you know, we prayed the prayer and we, and we did the thing. We, we got baptized. I'm good with God. Are you really? Have you learned humility, contrition? And have you ever trembled? Are you crying out to God in prayer? Are you, are you seeking Him in, in His Word? Because you can't get enough of Him. You know, as my old, my old seminary uh, pastor used to say, you get as much of God as you want. How much do you want? <laughs> he, has to be, he has to be our preeminent appetite. Or I would, I would say, you've got some serious problems. If he's not your preeminent appetite, if he's not your preeminent appetite, we have some problems. The, the, the dictionary definition of holy helps us to understand why these men responded the way they did. Obviously, um, the first definition of holy is that it belonging to or associated with divine power. Can you imagine being the in the presence of omnipotence? You know, <laughs> unlimited power? Of course, I think we would all get on our face. Another definition of holy is that um, the one who is holy is worthy of worship. Well, this is the baseline obligation of any creature, right? Even if you don't love him. Even if you don't love him. You will worship Him. You will bow your knee, either now or in hell. You will bow your knee. Another definition is, of course, you know this one. This is the one we always think of, right? Highly moral, His absolute purity, virtue, goodness, decency, and righteousness. And again, why, why, was, why was Isaiah ruined? Because of his own sin. And we, we all understand that, right? As mature Christians. And the last one I love, he is other. He is other. He's set apart. He is distinct. He is foreign to us. He is supernatural. All of these, his omnipotence, his eminence, his moral purity, and his supernatural otherness, they evoke evoked fear in the heart of man. We, we, it's all over the page. It's all over the Bible, right? We can't miss this. We cannot miss it. I'm going to quote uh, R.C. Sproul. He's an American theologian. He says it like this. When we encounter God, the totality of our creatureliness breaks upon us and shatters the myth we thought about ourselves. And I'm paraphrasing that it was kind of about me, that, that, that it's a lot about me. 
He says, you see, God, you know exactly who it's about. And it ain't you. <laughs> right? Sproul goes on. In truly glimpsing God, we realize that he's too great for us. He's too awesome for us. In his presence, we quake and we tremble. Apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, meeting him will be our greatest trauma. Amen? You have to know this, beloved. You have to know it would be your greatest trauma lest you be covered by the blood. Man, you've got to run to the cross. We've got to run. And we've got to weep at the cross, right? Because we're lost without him. We're going to be cast into the lake of fire apart from the grace of Christ. This is why we look at theology. It drives us to Christ. You know, this is not an academic exercise. Why are we doing this? Because it matters. Theology matters. It will drive us. It will drive us to the foot of the cross in a desperate cry for grace and mercy. This is why we study theology. This is why we do it. I love what Pink says about the holiness of God. This is in our book, and we'll talk about it tonight. He calls holiness the transcendent attribute that runs through all the rest. I love it. He says it's the luster and beauty of all other attributes. He says it's the attribute of attributes. And you guys know this. There's no other angelic chorus in the Bible whereby God is worshipped. There's no chorus of love, 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 mercy, 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 wrath, 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 justice, justice, justice. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, which He is and you're not. Nor am I. You know, if you've got, I know, hey, I know how it is. You probably got saved when you were eight. Okay, that's cool. You got saved when you were eight. Part of what I hope to try to do is at least, you know, have some deep appreciation of this transaction God has done in our behalf. That, that, that it's not just background music. It's not music. We're not going to take it for granted anymore. It's going to mean something every day when I get up. You know, my paraphrase of that Isaiah passage, <laughs> I've shared it with you already in the series, I think. God is holy. He's other. One thing they're saying, one thing the angelic beings are saying is there's nobody like you. There's nobody like you. There's nobody like you. It's exactly what they're saying. You are unique. Utterly unique. There's no God beside you nine times I found, and I wasn't even looking that hard. There's no God like me. He's happy to report to his people. Again, Revelation 15:4. Who will not fear a God like this? So let's spend a few minutes looking at his power. In our study tonight, we have a great quote from a Puritan, Stephen Sharnock. And he writes this about the power of God. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine. If he doesn't have the power, he can't 
He can't do anything. But he does have the power. How vain it would be, uh, his eternal counsels would be, if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises an empty sound. His threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power, I love this sentence, God's power is like himself. It is infinite, it is eternal, it is incomprehensible, it can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated. Amen? I love that. Let's turn back over to where Joe was reading earlier, Isaiah 40. Let's go back to the, our, our scripture reading that we used to begin the, the service. Isaiah 40, verse 25. Isaiah 40, verse 25. Let me just read it again. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One, right? There it is. I mean, he's, he's incorporated as, as a name for himself, the Holy One, which means there's nobody like me. <laughs> Uppercase H, holy. There's nobody like me. It's one thing he's saying right there between the lines. He says, to whom will you liken me? There's nobody like me. I'm the Holy One. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. In Isaiah 40, 25, God is again talking about his otherness. I just made that point. And he often in Scripture appeals to his created order to display his godness, right? Who else speaks a cosmos into existence? Who else does that? Do you know anybody? It's what he did with Job. Now, many people would say, well, Job had a le legitimate complaint against God. Okay? Many, many people. Your average person out on the street, some people in the church, would actually say, Job had a legitimate complaint. But what did Job do with his complaint when God showed up? He ate it. He swallowed it. He put his hand over his mouth. And I, I just got to quote Elaney again, which we will do more and more and more. The closer we get to him, the, the better we see him, we'll be doing this more and more and more. Putting our hands on our mouth. He's God. We're not. I love this here. God says, look at the stars. I did that. I not only created them, I lead them. Meaning, I, I hold them up. So I have the power to speak something, you know, into existence out of nothing, and I have the power to sustain them in their orbits. I have this power. So I want to tease this out just a little bit. I want to tease out the science here. I'm going to lose some of you, but you can have my notes if you like. I'll be happy to email them to you. Why am I going to do this? I'm going to spend like three minutes on this, but why am I going to do it? Because God doesn't intend for you to look at the created order and feel nothing. And postulate some random natural origin. 
Everything God has made speaks about Him. So regarding the power here, in, 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 in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, just the power here. There's unquantifiable power here. We can't begin to quantify the power here. Why does God want us to understand that He has this kind of power? Because He can be trusted. He will save you to the uttermost forever. He can. And nobody can change it. But I'm going to tease out the data here just a little bit. Some estimate, and I don't assume I know what any of this means. Okay, I don't know what any of this means. I'm just reporting facts. All right? Some estimates are that there are one septillion stars in the universe. A septillion. Now, Brad probably knows what a septillion is. I have no idea what a septillion is. I do know it's one with 24 zeros. I know that, but my mind doesn't work that big. This is, these, are, these are not planets. These are just stars. Now, there are 700 quintillion star, uh, planets. 700 quintillion. I don't know what that is either. But Yahweh knows what it is. These numbers are meaningless to us. But he's, look what he says. I know their names. <laughs> I know their names. I know that not one of them is missing because of my power. I saw this on Google yesterday. It's likely that there are five to ten times more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches on the earth. It's power. Unquantifiable power. The observable, observable universe has a diameter of 28.5 gigaparsecs. I have no idea what that is. Uh, but it, the, the, the definition is that it's about 93 trillion light years. 28.5 gigaparsecs. That's 93, approximately 93 trillion light years. You know what a light year is. That's 6 trillion miles. So the observable universe is 93 trillion times 6 trillion miles. And you guys know what Habakkuk says. This is the hiding of his power. The created order hides God's power. You haven't seen anything yet. Beloved, we are so free. We are so free. We're so free. Our God, that's the God that stands behind us. That's the God that, that keeps His promise and can and keep, keep His promise and will keep His promise. You know, you read the Genesis account, Genesis 1.16, there's like five words when, it, when He's talking about the, he, the, the, the heavens. He made the stars also. He made the stars also. I always loved that. You know, 99.99999, whatever, to the thousandth power of all mass and space, he covers it in five words. You know, it's like, the, it's like that psalm. What, what, what's, what's the psalm? Um, psalm 8. It's like he talks about the cosmos as the finger play of, of Yahweh. Maybe one more data point. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. 
A million Earths can fit inside our sun, but five million of our suns can fit inside the largest star known as Uyscuti. Our sun runs on nuclear fission at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit at the core, converts hydrogen to helium. An atomic bomb, bomb works by nuclear fis uh, fission and is a chain reaction of nuclei splitting. Okay, so we have this, we, we have seemingly infinite power within the nuclei, and we have uh, seemingly infinite visible evidence of, of infinite power in the cosmos. I mean, <laughs> this is why God says, consider the heavens, consider the stars. We are so free to radically obey Christ. Because this kind of power is standing right, on, right behind us. This kind of power. Right? Jim, I, I feel like I'm called to do something, but, but I'm afraid. Of course you're afraid. You're always afraid. I've always been afraid. I've always been afraid. And then I look at Yahweh, and I'm not afraid anymore. You know what I'm talking about, some of you guys. Got a few years on you. You know what I'm talking about. You've been afraid to do what he said, what he's asked you to do. Of course you're afraid. It's not on your resume. <laughs> it's on his. He knows how to do it. Okay, I saw this. I just have to say it to you. I don't know what it means. Talk to Brad. One drop of water contains four trillion joules of electric energy. Or talk to Joe. I have no idea what that means. Yahweh does. Let it be, God said, let it be, and there it was. I love what this old Puritan Thomas and Watson said. He said, to create requires infinite power. All the world cannot make a fly. You know, what men do is they just take existing materials and they... God just speaks. God just speaks. Just a couple of verses. <clears throat> Survey, short biblical survey here. Job 9, 19. If it is a matter of power, behold, Yahweh is the strong one. Psalm 62, 11, David writes, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Psalm 89, 5 through 8. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? a God greatly to be feared, a mighty God. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. You hear me say this a lot. He does whatever he pleases, implying that no one can stop him or frustrate him. Isaiah 40.28, do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. He has limitless energy, vitality, vigor, dynamism, strength, and force. It never ends. It just keeps coming. Nebuchadnezzar, after he had been humbled by God's power, Daniel 4, 34 and 35. For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of, of earth, and no one can ward off his hand. We can go to numerous Judgment accounts in Scripture where we see God's limitless power employed to judge His enemies. You, you, you guys, 
You go, you go read the Exodus account. He used, he used flies and frogs and lice and gnats and insects and disease and hail and locusts, and he destroyed Egypt. I mean, he could destroy us in five minutes. It, with any number of any number of options. I always loved Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of, of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as, and as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? And you guys know. I know we don't think about this. But he talks about in the final judgment how, how God's power will preserve the resurrected human body in the lake of fire. He will employ his power in judgment. Revelation 19.1.6, I love this. Hallelujah, John writes, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Amen? So Yahweh tells us that He is holy and He is omnipotent. And Yahweh tells us in His Word that we are unholy and we are impotent. We have a huge problem. We have Isaiah's problem. How are we going to resolve this problem? We can't, but He did. I'm just going to read a couple scriptures to you and I'm done. 1 Corinthians 1.30 By His, that's the Father, by, by the Father's doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, and what? You're unholy. But in Christ, uh, we have received righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Amen? You are unholy. I am unholy. But in Christ, we have received righteousness and sanctification. 2 Corinthians 5, 12. The Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might what? Become what? The righteousness of God. It's amazing, right? What Jesus Christ has offered to us and accomplished for us. I was listening to a preacher this week and he brought up Ephesians 1.19. The Holy Spirit talks about the surpassing greatness of God's power toward those who believe. The surpassing greatness of God's power toward those who believe. I was listening to Piper this week, too. And he made a, a salient point. I, I shared it with Karen. He says, I am not unconscious of how much Satan hates me and my wife. I am not unconscious of this. I am fully conscious of demonic opposition. I am fully conscious that they hate me, they hate what I say, they hate what I believe, they hate what I do, they hate my marriage, they hate my kids. The demons do. I know they do. But they can't have me. They can't have me. Because my omnipotent God reigneth. That Ephesians 1.19, the surpassing greatness of God's power. He's talking about, you know, making that which is dead alive. He's talking about, you know, that heart transplant, the new birth. He's talking about the supernatural indwelling and sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about divine might preserving us in our faith. He's talking about deific power exerted to, to resurrect our bodies. 
uh, in the new heaven and new earth. He's talking about the eternal power to hold us into being and to hold us together with Him forever and ever and ever and ever. We don't have to worry about it. We're His forever. We don't have to worry about it. That can't change. It can never change. Let me close with this. Pink says, Well, may the believer adore and trust in such a God. Amen. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him, seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence. I love this. No prayer is too hard for him to answer. No need is too great for him to supply. No passion too strong for him to subdue. No temptation too powerful for him to deliver from. No misery too deep for him to relieve. God says, is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? And I'll quote Isaiah 44, 8. I know of none. I know of none. Let's pray together.